So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about service design. What is it and how is it different from what we'd normally consider user experience design? We talked to expert Lou Down to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. top front-end tools of 2023, Louis Lazarus casts an eye back over the year just gone to look at front-end tools. And who doesn't love a good front-end tool? In this roundup, you'll find useful front-end tools that were popular last year and will help you speed up your development workflow. Tamania Thief dives into the complex but awesome CSS border image property. It's one of those properties that you undoubtedly know exists but may not have ever reached for. Or maybe you have reached for it, but found all of its slicing logic difficult and cumbersome. That's because it is. But the property is also capable of some really interesting things if we take time to understand its syntax. In this article, Tamani demonstrates different approaches for using border image to create some clever decorative accents and shapes. In The AI Dilemma in Graphic Design, steering towards excellence in typography and beyond, Philippe Paldier and Jamie Clark note that AI promises a major upheaval in typography, with designers finding themselves navigating both opportunities and challenges. How will it impact quality, design roles, and our use of type in the future? As we explore this new frontier, we realise that we're at a juncture as significant as Gutenberg's press, set to redefine how we interact with text and visual communication. Yeah, even awe brings us the CSS blurry shimmer effect. Box shadows are fairly straightforward in CSS. It's a great way to add depth to what might be otherwise a flat design. Taking inspiration from shadows, author Yeah Even Or creates the same sort of thing only with a blurring effect in place of the shadow. Read along for a step-by-step explanation of how it comes together using a combination of masks, gradients, and the good old backdrop filter property. Oh yeah! In A Simple Guide to Retrieval Augmented Generation Language Models, Joas Pambu notes that language models have shown impressive capabilities, but that doesn't mean they're without faults, as anyone who has witnessed a chat GPT hallucination can attest. Retrieval Augmented Generation, RAG, is a framework designed to make language models more reliable by pulling in relevant, up-to-date data directly related to a user's query. In this article, Joas diagnoses the symptoms that cause hallucinations and explains not only what RAG is, but also shows different approaches for using it to solve language model limitations. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. They are the founding director of the School of Good Services and the author of Good Services, the best-selling book on how to design services that work. Formerly, they were director of design at the UK government, where they founded the discipline of service design, growing a 2,000-strong team of designers into one of the largest and most influential design teams in the UK, winning a Designs of the Year award and a DNAD Lifetime Achievement Award along the way. So we know they're an expert in service design, but did you know they once crossed the Sahara Desert by unicycle whilst juggling current buns? 
My smashing friends, please welcome Lou Down. Hi, Lou. How are you? I'm smashing. Thank you. (laughs) Good to hear it. So I wanted to talk to you today about service design, which is very much your whole area of focus for your training and consultancy and your book, Good Services. Our our listeners here at Smashing mostly folks involved in digital design and development and and content uh, production who will be working on all sorts of kinds of of services. So to to shortcut the rather boring question of what is a service, I'll spare you that one. Um, In in your book, you succinctly put it as uh, a service helps a person to do something. Um, So I'm guessing that could be applying for a place at university or trying to stop milk being delivered whilst you're away on holiday or the many millions of of other things that you could be trying to achieve. So rather than ask uh, what is a service, I uh, would rather ask why is good service design important to you? It's a very good question. I think good service design is important to me in the same way that it's important to every other user of services in that most of our lives are shaped by services. And the two that you gave as examples are are two ends of the scale. But if you have milk pile up on your door, whilst you've not managed to get your place at university, (laughs) your life isn't going to be in a great place. I think there's a a really brilliant quote from uh, the fantastic designer Victor Papanek that I would think about, which puts this in context. And he said that there are few professions more dangerous than product design. And he was imagining cars that don't work and playgrounds that fall to pieces when people climb on them. Our world is a very different world to the world that Victor Papanek lived in. And we are now so unbelievably reliant on services that I think we need to update that statement that there are a few professions more dangerous than product design and service design is one of them. Very important for avoiding a life of milk and regret. Um, (laughs) No one wants milk. More milk than they they need. <laughs> uh, I, I I kind of think as individuals who think about uh, user experience at all, we're possibly doomed to be double wounded by bad service design. Um, first, because we experience the pain as a customer, and then we get this second wave of professional rage that follows about how terrible the thing is and how it could have been so much better. Uh, and probably ev- every one of us has got some sort of story about how uh, bad design has, has ruined their day. For me, it's the mobile phone company that requires a, a one-time passcode to uh, be received to log into their account. It has to be received by SMS, but they sold me a, a SIM and a device with no capability of receiving SMS. So I have to pop the SIM out and put it in a different device every time I want to log in. Very frustrating, very annoying, relatively trivial in the scheme of things. It's not getting access to healthcare or receiving critical legal documents or getting paid the money you need to be able to feed your family. Previously, you were director of design for UK government, which is an enormous provider of services, many of which carry those sorts of very serious implications. What were some of the sort of problems that you were facing there and the challenges in that role? Question. Um, The challenges of designing services in in government are to some extent quite similar to the challenges of designing services in any particularly big and old organisation in that the vast majority of our issues come from the fact that we don't actually recognise ourselves as a service provider. (laughs) So we think about ourselves providing forms and systems and products and processes and policies 
we don't see that all of those things are experienced as services that help people to achieve an end goal, come to the UK and stay or have a baby. Part of the really big challenge that we have and had when I was there was just helping everyone in the organization that we were working with to actually see what they were doing as a component part of that overall experience that someone was having. And given that the civil service is, it was when I was working there, about 500,000 people, which is vast. You've got 25 different government departments and about 10,000 services on Gov.uk. And I say about 10,000 because we don't actually know how many services there are, which is part of the issue that we have. <laughs> it's slightly petrifying to think about the government doesn't have a list of all the services that we have, but that tells you everything about the lack of visibility of that service that we're providing. So part of our challenge is just helping people to see what they do as a service and helping them to see it from the same perspective that our users see it. And given that some of government services are some of the oldest services in this country, you think about something like the Fishing Rod License Service, which is about 260 years older than the United States as the United States. The original service design for that is written on vellum, basically animal skin, and it's stored in the National Archives. For anyone who's a serious nerd in service design, do go and uh, have a look when you're next in London. But really seeing something that is that old and that entrenched in process and policies and, and legislation from the same perspective that a user is seeing it is a very different thing. And then when you add in the vast changes in behavior that come with changes in technology, and the fact that government has had to drag what is essentially a huge burden of legislation and policy that wasn't designed for that world into the 21st century, you have a massive amount of change that is required and sustained over a long period of time. And that's a lot of energy. That's a lot of enthusiasm that needs to be kept going amongst 500,000 people is it's a lot. But like I said, it's really just an extension of the problems that I think many, particularly pre-internet organizations have, and particularly very large ones. I sometimes think that the vast majority of services that spring up online from public bodies and massive corporations and sort of thinking banks and airlines and the privatized public services, they seem to be often a result of a technical exercise to turn an internal system into one that's accessible online. And this taken some terrible COBOL database system that a call handler used to work at an airline to change the name on a ticket. And they've put an HTML interface on it and put that online and without any thought to as, you know, what the customer is trying to achieve when they go through that process. Is that something much of in your work? And what should we be doing differently? What, what's the solution to this? I think the solution is in your question there. Don't take an existing thing and just expect to slap it on the internet and for it to work. Because <laughs> obviously it's not going to. But that, I think that is the real challenge, actually, isn't it? It's understanding the expectations and the mental model of someone who is coming at a service on their mobile phone at three in the morning, having no familiar with, familiarity with that thing versus someone who would walk into a frontline government office in the 50s and 60s and say to an expert who sits behind a desk, this is my challenge, how can you help me do this? And, and that, you know, that behavior change from pre-internet services to internet-based services exposes a real mental model shift that we have not got used to with many services. And that is that basically 
at the moment, Google is the homepage to your service, whether that's a digital service or not. And essentially what people are looking for is tasks that they want to get done, particularly when it comes to government services. They're looking to come to the UK and stay, or they're looking to start a business. And unless they can get from that verb that they're trying to get done to this big long list of complex names of things, acronyms, strange backronyms <laughs> that we like to call our services, then people aren't even going to be able to find it in the first place. And that is one of the biggest problems that that particularly those pre-internet services have is that they just simply aren't findable. So you can make it the best form in the world. You can put the the most accessible cover on top of your nasty system. <laughs> but if you haven't really thought about what that thing is and how people are going to find it and what they're going to expect when they get there, then you just, you know, it's going to be sat there languishing on the internet. And there are many services that are in that category where we see them basically getting digitized, put on the internet. We expect a massive downturn in the number of phone calls and emails we get about it. And in fact, actually, you just see a steady increase in the number of complaints and, and queries about it because nobody knows that service exists and they can't find it. So is that is that a technical problem or a, a design problem or a bit of everything? How does one go about making a service discoverable? I mean, it's partially a technical problem, but I think the reason why we haven't solved it in most cases is because we've only seen it as a technical problem. This is where you wheel in your early noughties SEO experts, isn't it, usually? And you say, <laughs> how can you game the system? Can you promote my service in AdWords? And in reality, the reason why no one can find it is because it's called something completely obscure that doesn't reflect what that person is looking for. To give you a, an example, one of my favorite examples of this is the sheep and cattle tracing service from the Department of Environment and Rural Affairs here in the UK. And it basically helps you to keep track of sheep and cattle. It's pretty self-explanatory when you really think about it. So if you have a sheep and you want to record where that sheep is and how old that sheep is and who you sold that sheep is, sheep too rather, then that's the service for you. But it's called ARAMS as an acronym. <laughs> uh, love it. <laughs> so nobody is going to be looking for that. No one's going to find that service by looking for the acronym because you have to know what that thing is called in order to be able to find it. Unless you know what that name is before, like it, you end up basically in a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can't find that thing. But I think the the real challenge to this is when you start thinking about services in this bigger way. You start thinking about them as verbs, as things that people are trying to get done. They get much bigger. So you go from thinking about something as the sheep and cattle tracing service to how do I sell my sheep or how do I make sure that I know what the immunization record for this particular animal is that I'm buying? How do I check that this is a good sheep to buy? I'm not an expert in sheep, you might be able to tell. <laughs> it's a good example. And it's an example, I think, that many, and it's not just government that's struggling with this, any large organization that predates the internet will have a absolute pile of Google fails that no one can find. And are called all sorts of really weird and wonderful things. And like I said, they can be the best service in the world, but if no one can find it, then there's no point in having it. You've mentioned it a couple of times, but I think one of the, one of the things you do wonderfully at the, the School of uh, Good Services is you have all these sort of laconic mantras that you put on posters and stickers and things to keep the team focused on, on service design. And one of them says, good services are verbs and bad services are nouns. So that, I guess that's what you're hinting out there is thinking from a, a task sort of point of view from the user rather than just what is my service, I think. 
thinking from a user point of view, what are they looking, what are they trying to achieve and, and go from there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the real challenge to this way of thinking, to thinking about services as verbs, is that, as I said, they get bigger and they often then start to stretch outside of your team and outside of your organization. So if you think about something like opening a bank account, that's not just going to involve the team that does new customer onboarding. It will involve the team who manage the My Account. It will involve credit checking. It will involve multiple different teams. With And so that's when you start to hit this real reality of service design is that most services don't end up being designed because we can't see them as a whole. And it's almost impossible to design something if we can't see it and acknowledge that it exists. And if we think that the service is the bank account, and we don't see opening an account, and we don't see closing an account, we don't see those activities that people do, then those simply will happen by accident when we're making other sorts of decisions in the organization, like moving between different technologies or kind of political decisions in the organization. Because everything gets designed, right? It's just the level of, of care and consideration that gets put into the design. Absolutely. Yeah. You either design something consciously or you let it be designed design by accident. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think <laughs> this is the other sort of weird false economy that when people talk about investing in design, you go, you just investing in doing that design consciously. The design is happening anyway <laughs> without you really investing anything in it at all. It's just what you're talking about is actually doing it rather than doing it by accident. Sometimes those of us who are in uh, maybe agency or, or consultancy work could be brought into, say, customer services to help them deal with efficiently processing high levels of complaints or whatever sort of issue they're dealing with. And in trying to work out how to fix that problem, it might turn out that the solution is actually uh, starts in, in pre-sales where customers are being sold the wrong thing. And so that it gives rise to the complaints. So you might have been brought in by, by one part of the company, but you might need to take a look across the whole process. How would you suggest people broach that sort of topic? How do you get a, a wider part of an organization involved in solving these problems rather than just looking at them on a, a local level? Yeah, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that that often isn't something that a lot of people have permission to do in their organization. And the reason why they're finding it challenging is not because they haven't thought about it <laughs> or because they haven't tried, actually. It's because it's actually really challenging to do and involves coordination of multiple different teams over a long period of time. So I think the first thing I would say to anyone in that situation is don't blame yourself. This is not easy. This is a really difficult thing to do. And the second thing to think about is actually prioritizing those challenges that exist across multiple different teams. It's really easy. And I've seen this time and time again, you get really well-meaning, enthusiastic designers that create this wonderful user journey map and they present it to all their stakeholders and say, look, this user journey is much more complicated and look at this customer going through all of these different things and how difficult it is. And of course, the, the kind of lone voice in the back of the room says, we don't want to boil the ocean or various other things that are essentially a way of deflecting this and stopping doing something that ultimately requires lots of coordination and is very difficult to do. Because it's 2023, we're all tired. <laughs> so I understand why people would be resistant to this. And it comes down to power and control and the difficulty we have as humans collaborating on something that we don't necessarily wholly own ourselves. It's, it's a challenging thing to do. And often our organizations are disincentivized to work in that way 
because of things like Conway's law. Our organizations tend to design services that copy the shape of the organization. So if we've got 10 teams, you can be pretty sure that we'll create 10 services rather than one service that joins those things up. So often what we're dealing with when we start creating these beautiful, seamless user journeys is we start to realize that if we scratch the surface under why those things are happening, we realize these are big problems to do with organizational structure or incentivization or business model. And that's why I say prioritize your time and your energy, because some of those things are short-term things you can fix and you can have a great conversation about sharing customer data across different bits of the surface. And that's fantastic. But if you if your aim is to try and change the structure of the organization, maybe just take a breath <laughs> and realize you're it. It's it's not a sprint or a marathon, it's a relay race and you're gonna need other people to help you with it and think about a, a plan and a strategy around. I think. And that really is what we spend a lot of our time teaching and, and coaching people to do is how to engage with the the reality actually of service design and delivery because this is the reality. The reality is most services are shared by different teams in organizations that are not designed how we want them to be. And that's something we need to get used to. Hmm. And can there be a benefit in improving just a small part of a service that you're able to affect, even though it's maybe a bit of a dumpster fire either side of the bit you own? Is that is there still benefit to doing that, or is it a case of of just slowly chipping away and, until you've got the buy in from everybody else and doing it as a big project? Yeah, I like. I don't want to be the person who says it depends, but obviously it does. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've got something that is truly terrible, be my guest. Let that thing crash and burn, <laughs> and then be the person to sweep in it afterwards and say, "I told you." That is a valid method of stakeholder management. But that is obviously very drastic. So if you don't want that to happen, yeah, absolutely. I think this is part of the challenge, I think, of service design is learning how to find those things that we can influence and use those things as levers on those bigger problems. Because like I said, these things are heavy to lift. And if we can start to expose bigger issues by just showing that the problem exists, then that's a great thing to do. This is something that we did on Gov.uk a lot. As you can imagine, there's many big services that are not connected, things like coming to the UK and staying. And our tactic was to always just expose the problem first and foremost. And we came up with a format called Step by Step, which was essentially a way of organising all of the content on Gov.uk that was related to a particular journey putting some analytics around that and then watching how people struggled with that thing and then being able to use that as a method to go back to those organizations to say, hey, people are getting lost halfway through this journey and it's because the language isn't consistent or it's because this bit of data isn't linked up or it's because this part of the system doesn't talk to each other. And being able to actually show the problem in its reality, I think, is part of the challenge because often we don't have that data, we don't have the evidence. We don't have access to call center numbers or failure rates as designers sometimes. So finding that evidence, I think, can be the first step. And say you've, you've identified um, a, a whole bunch of places where you could make improvements, um, but you've got a, a small team, limited budget, and you want to have as much impact a, as you can. How should you go about identifying where to spend your time to have the most impact? Again, it does depend, doesn't it? <laughs> but if you 
sorry, I'll rephrase that. I think the most important ooh, creaky chair. I think the most important thing to think about when you've got a limited amount of people or time or budget to to solve problems is firstly, where are you going to have the biggest impact on that user's life? And that may not necessarily be where you think it is. The biggest problem for them may be the billing process, although your organization thinks that the biggest issue is the onboarding process because they want more customers. So thinking about it from the perspective of a user is really important, but unless you can explain it in language that the organization understands, and in that that is usually a language of money or organizational objectives or sometimes risk, then it's just not going to resonate. So finding a way of showing the impact on the organization of customers who are leaving the process or people who don't understand the way that you're talking about something or a accessibility issue and finding a way of quantifying that is is your way of opening up the alignment between what the organization wants to achieve and, and what your user is really struggling with. And particularly, I think, in a sort of commercial context as well, some of those are really big issues to do with the business model and the way that the organization is working. Are we making money from ad sales and we're cluttering the homepage and no one can find anything and essentially we're losing customers over time and therefore we'll eventually lose our ad revenue? (laughs) Or do we want to actually switch to making a good product that people will pay for and to really think deeply about the financial impact? on the organization, particularly if you're in a a commercial space, that will be your way of aligning these two things. So gathering lots of data, analytics, and yeah, uh, you mentioned like volumes of calls and and things. I guess there's all sorts of evidence you can collect to to build up a a case and just put the information in front of you and and see what's screaming the loudest. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and show, find a way of creating that journey and monitoring and measuring how well it's doing right now. Because often the problem is that we just don't know. We have no idea how well that service is doing. We're measuring net promoter score, but hey, no one's recommending our prison system because funnily enough, it's not something that people want to recommend. <laughs> or we're measuring new customers in our banking uh, app, but we're not measuring the number of customers that leave. Actually recognizing where you have these really big gaps in your knowledge about how well something's doing is really important. Five stars would be incarcerated again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Such a true uh, story. Have you ever experienced a, a project where improvements have been made to a service only to find out that you've got worse results? That might be a bit of a curveball. <laughs> no, that's a, re- it's a really good question, Drew. Yes, but often unexpected results. Actually, I think to say re- release a service and create worse results is only really worse if you don't learn from it, <laughs> which is actually something my mum's always said. A mistake isn't a mistake if you learn from it, which when you grow up dyslexic is a pretty good thing to hear because um, you make a lot of mistakes, or at least I do. Um, yeah, I think what, one of the, the most interesting examples of this from Gov.uk actually is a, a service called Driving with a Medical Condition. And it's a service that helps people to declare medical problems that they have that might change their ability to be able to drive. And usually these are things like changes in your vision, strokes, glaucoma, things like this. And this is actually a really perfect example of of what happens when you take an existing service and you just put it on the internet. Because in this particular example, that's exactly what happened. And the service went 
live on gov.uk with pretty much the same information as it had before as a paper form. And all it said was basically, you must tell the DVLA, which is equivalent to the DMV in the US, so basically the organisation that does driving licences, you must tell the DVLA if you have a notifiable medical condition or disability, or that condition or disability gets worse since you got your driving licence, but they didn't specify what notifiable actually meant at all. And so what they ended up with when the service first went live was 40% of the declarations to the service being completely unnecessary. And so they saw a massive amount of people declaring things like ingrown toenails and stiff necks and hemorrhoids. <laughs> These are actually the, the kind of most, most common things that people were declaring. <laughs> because people wanted to be on the right side of the law, right? We hadn't explained the purpose of the service. We hadn't said to people, we're asking you because we want to work out if you're safe to drive. And most people, if they knew that information, would look at that and go, yeah, you're right, this ingrown internal is probably not as serious as I thought it was. I don't need to declare it. But of course, your insurance is invalid if, if you don't declare a medical condition and you're liable for prosecution. So if your doctor says, careful how you drive, you're going to go a step further and make sure that you, you're doing the right thing. But whilst that's a funny story, it also has a massive impact on all the people who did need to use that that service because, of course, most of the people who do have medical conditions or disabilities that will affect their driving are either professional drivers because of lifestyle of driving, driving drive a long haul truck for a period of years. You're going to have some, some health uh, outcomes as a result of that. Uh, older people. And both of those groups really need an answer very quickly on whether or not they can get back to driving because they rely on their car or their vehicle for their livelihood. And so this massive amount of people who didn't need to be in the system essentially were slowing down this process for all of these people who did need an answer. So I think it was a really great example of actually a service enthusiastically embracing the kind of digital age and then not realising actually that we need to be very clear about the purpose of the service. Who should be using it? Why should they be using it? How does it work? What does it do? So that you end up with the right people using it and the people who don't need to use it can go on with their lives and use another service and do something else and carry on driving. I, I imagine that in service design, in, in all aspects of design, we talk about user research and, and, and talking to users um, uh, before you embark on your, or in the early stages of your design process. I'm guessing for for this sort of service design, user research is absolutely invaluable. Is that right? Is, it, is yeah, that a, a process that you, you go through? Yeah, it's you can design a service without doing any user research. I don't know that it would be advisable. <laughs> and there are lots of brilliant examples of where we've made some pretty fundamental mistakes in the world because we've assumed that all of our users are like ourselves. And the more of a monoculture your organisation has, the more mistakes you will end up making because you won't have considered how other people will use your service. So that's that, I think, is a real issue. But interestingly enough, actually, I published Good Services and, and the 15 Principles of Good Service Design, partially just because I saw people wasting a huge amount of time doing user research or asking themselves the question that actually we already had an answer for. And spending loads of our time figuring out for the hundredth time that people need to be able to find your service, or that you need to be set people's expectations, or 
they need to not get stuck in dead ends. These are really basic fundamental truths that will apply to every single service that exists. Um, and you know, if we can bypass having to constantly rediscover these really basic things and spend our time really understanding the accessibility and inclusion issues of our particular user group or understanding how this fits in the context of their lives in more detail, that is time and money well spent. So really focusing your research actually on the areas that you don't understand, I think is probably more important actually than this question of how much user research you end up doing. It's not really about volume, it's about actually discovering the things that you really genuinely don't know and asking those questions. How do you identify the things that you don't know that you don't know? I'm sure there's many, many <laughs> business consultants that could give you a framework around that, Drew. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> How much money have you got? The <laughs> Sounds like some unknowns. exciting bedtime reading as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. How do you know what you don't know? This is, yeah, this is where service design turns into existentialism. I think part of it is about genuinely understanding who is not represented in your service. Do you genuinely understand why you don't have any users from this particular group represented in your service? Why are they not using it? What's going on there? And sometimes actually finding out things that you don't know means just casting caution to the wind and having some conversations with people without rigorously structuring the conversation, without thinking about your discussion guide and all of those things that we like to do. And just having a chat with someone and being open to learning and listening to new things and finding people whose perspective is different to what you perhaps maybe thought you should be listening to. Follow that thread. Keep tugging at it rather than coming up with a plan of finding out things that you already know. You uh, you mentioned the, the 15 uh, principles of good service design, which you uh, lay out in your book. And it's not just like you don't just lay them out in chapter one and then move on to to something else that is the the kind of meat of it that that meat isn't probably this the like environmentally sustainable protein of of the book uh, is these 15 principles uh, and you dig into each of those in turn if somebody was wanting to get in, get more into service design is that the place to start is that where you'd send them to to the, these 15 principles i would obviously i would say buy the book <laughs> etc I would also say those principles are available for free on the internet on good.services. So if you don't want to buy the book, you don't have to. They are there. You can read them. There's also a free assessment tool that you can use to, to work out how well your service is doing against them. But yes, I would direct people there principally because I think within service design, and this is probably true for many other disciplines, we spend so much of our time talking about how we design services talking about the tools and the methods and all of those sorts of things that we use to, to do our jobs, that often we forget that the most important thing is that we know what we're designing and we know what we're aiming for and what good looks like. So before you start thinking about how you're going to design the service and who needs to be involved and all of your stakeholder maps and tools and blueprints and etc., just get to grips with what a good service looks like and have a think about how well your service is doing. Use that free tool have a think about the areas that your service is really struggling with. If it's the beginning bit around findability and understandability, go and do some research around that bit. And don't get too hung up on on how you end up designing good services. There are some absolutely brilliant um, books out there. This is Service Design Thinking uh, is a great one. This is Service Design Doing, another really good book on tools and methods. 
There's also a fantastic book if you do evolve beyond thinking about the experience that someone has of the service into how do I run an organization that can deliver good services? Do go and check out Kate Tarling's book called The Service Organization. That's fantastic as well. So there's some brilliant books out there as well to go and read once you've understood what makes a service and what makes a good and a bad service. But I'd say definitely start there. Looking at at sort of one service in isolation is, I'm sure, a task in itself. But when you're thinking about things on the scale of um, governments or massive service providers, how do you scale up that process to an entire organisation to get everybody thinking about this? Is, Is that possible? No, it's not possible to get every single person on the same page, is it? Let's be realistic. Everyone has different life experiences and different perspectives, and there will always be parts of the organisation that, for very good reasons, have perhaps maybe a lot of cynicism, trepidation, fear even, actually, of, of this, of service design, of thinking about users. Often that comes down to having tried to do what you're doing before and it not working. Sometimes it's a concern about risk and particularly high-risk environments, banks, government organizations. They're worried that you're going to experiment and kill some people. Fair enough. So I think that part of the challenge here is understanding why there is resistance. And this is a big part of what we talk about on our courses is really trying to understand what are the barriers and blockers in the organization rather than tipping over the table and going, ah, no one understands, change is hard, people don't like me. It's probably not that. It's probably that people are really often quite scared and trepidatious about what you're talking about for often very good reasons. So understanding that first, I think, is really important. And then really understanding the reality of actually what the barriers and blockers are for those people working together, because it's really easy for us to sit there in our kind of privileged position as designers and say, why don't you just collaborate with each other? Why don't you just share data? Why don't you just step outside of your day job and go and work with this other team? And what we don't realise is that person has barely enough time to do their day job, let alone consider change, let alone consider change that doesn't involve their part of the organisation. And by the way, they're in a really unstable employment situation and they have a mortgage to pay. And so they are very disincentivized to do anything that's going to jeopardize that. Really getting to grips with understanding that and thinking about the capacity of the organization to actually change. But I think the other side of this is actually equipping yourself with the skills to really engage with the reality of service design and delivery, learning how to write business cases learning how to negotiate and understand stakeholders, learning how to design an organization. These are all really important skills that we need to equip ourselves with as well. So what we do at the School of Good Services is we end up focusing on those two areas, helping an organization to increase its understanding of services and its level of service literacy so that our designers and our user researchers and everyone else don't have to explain on a day-to-day basis who they are and why they're in the room and that they can actually get change to happen, but also at the same time equipping them with the really specialist skills that they need to negotiate with that often quite difficult and sometimes hostile environment. Hmm. So what's next for, for service design? Are there are there any like changes or, or trends that you're seeing coming up in the industry? Uh, is everything going to be replaced with AI chatbots? What's uh, what? Or are we just at a stage where we're just looking for adoption at this point? I really, you know, what I tell you what I think people will expect to hear, and then I can tell you what I I hope that the reality actually is. Okay. So 
So I think the future that, that everyone gets excited about, obviously, is the capacity for AI to change services. And undoubtedly, it will for better and probably also for worse, as we've seen with every other technology, there's usually good outcomes and there's bad outcomes at the same. And, and we spend half of our careers focused on the good things and half of our day jobs focused on <laughs> stopping bad things from happening. And that won't change with AI. What is quite interesting in terms of a, a kind of service change with AI is what it does to our expectation, our behaviours around interacting with services. And, and we've already started to see this. People are much more focused on having conversations with services and doing everything within one single interaction. You're talking to the service and you're buying something, you're returning it, you're viewing it, you're getting support with that thing all in, in kind of one interaction. And I think what we'll start to see is probably more of that condensing of an experience more of that kind of personalization of the experience, less of Google being the main way that people interact with and find that stuff as well. Search will probably change. Will services still be verbs in that world? Probably. <laughs> Even more so, you know, but maybe it will be good services are, are verbs and sentences <laughs> rather than just good services are verbs. So I think that'll be an interesting thing to, to explore. And the other side of that, of course, is just the complexity that, that brings. We have organizations that are struggling technology decisions that they're making, mostly because they're just not seeing the impacts of them themselves because they're not doing that user research. So that will continue and that will probably get more extreme than it is ready as we start to outsource more decision-making capacity to machines and rather than to humans. We'll probably start to also see an increased need for human decision makers to be much more empowered than they are at the moment. At the moment, basically, we are just operators and the computer says, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. The system isn't allowing me, blah, 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 blah. We've all been on the phone and someone's <laughs> been telling us that. When a, a world around us is increasingly automated and we're doing simple tasks ourselves, it means that our, what we need from human contacts in a service context becomes much more involved. And we need that person to be able to actually bypass the algorithmic decision-making system and to be able to give us an answer and to really be empowered to do that. And that requires more skill, probably more pay, and an acknowledgement, actually, from organizations that, I'm sorry, but digital technology is not going to get rid of human beings. It never has done, it never will, and it will, in fact, actually probably make it even more important that those humans are well-paid and empowered to do what they're doing. That's that. But the other bit of this is just, please, can we just fix the things that are wrong with the services that we have right now? And I, I don't want to sound regressive when I say these things, but being able to issue an accurate bill, being able to actually give someone an answer when they ask for something, being able to route them to the right person to speak to a human being if they need to, making services accessible to people who need them without them having to tell us, hey, please stop locking away your content in an inaccessible PDF. These are really basic things, but they're not happening at the moment for lots of different reasons. And part of the reason is just cost. Lots of organizations quite simply cannot afford the ongoing cost of being a digital business. And so I think probably what we'll start to see is organizations increasingly struggling to survive in that world. And we've already for the last 15 or 20 years been competing on customer service. 
that will continue and the less good our services are, the less people we will have and we'll probably see kind of playing out over the next 10 years as well. So yeah, please fix the basics, but also please be aware of the ethical impacts of uh, the increasing automation of your service would be my request. <laughs> As someone who doesn't want milk piling up on my doorstep. I've been learning all about designing good services. Uh, what have you been learning about lately, Lou? I have been learning about the history of food in Devon recently. Okay. I, In the background, I'm starting a side hustle. That's my perpetual perpetual state is trying to balance my enthusiasm for side projects. And one of those things at the moment is thinking about starting a food business that focuses on basically producing locally sourced, locally produced vegan meats. And so what I have been learning about is the kind of vernacular history of food in the West Country. And one thing that I found really fascinating recently about this is that eating dairy is quite a recent phenomenon in the UK and actually only really started to come about in the 1700s when we all got really excited about being a bit more French. And we started eating loads of milk and cream and cheese and all sorts of other things. And before that, we ate quite a lot of almonds and almond milk. And it wasn't really until the war with Spain that actually the almond supply was cut off and we started to switch a little bit more to dairy products. That's really a very nerdy little side road down into the history of dairy in the West Country. Answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> and brought us neatly back to milk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knew we were so obsessed with milk? <laughs> if you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Lou, you can find them online at loudown.com and you can find the School of Good Services at the excellent URL of good.services where you can find out all about Lou's book and training for yourself or your team uh, and just a whole wealth of information on service design. Thanks for joining us today, Lou. Did you have any parting words? Yes, I do have some parting words to anyone who is listening to this who is excited and maybe a mixture of tired and fearful of trying to do this in the organisation they're in at the moment. And I would say, be kind to yourself. We can't make big change in the world unless we look after ourselves first. And it's like the advice we get on an aeroplane when the person says, attach your mask first before you start to think about other people. And something that I have certainly noticed in this profession is that the people who care the most are the people who burn out the fastest. So do look after yourself. And maybe after this podcast, have a little rest, go and look out the window, do some breathing exercises or something, whatever makes you feel happy. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food.